0: Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Itzhak Teutsch. He is the author of The Cyprus Detention Camps, The Essential Research Guide, published by Cambridge Scholars Publishing 2019. Itzhak is an independent scholar. He is a former librarian at Harvard University and former director of the Joint Distribution Committee, JDC Archives in Jerusalem. It's Huck. It is an honour to be in dialogue with you today.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Ari, and thanks for having me.
0: To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your academic interests and your scholarly journey?
1: Okay. Well, I was uh, born and raised in the United States. Um, As you can tell from my accent, uh, I was not raised in New York or Boston or the South uh, where the accents are pronounced and very distinctive. No, I was raised in the Midwest where the accents are rather bland and boring. So anyway, that's the way it is. Um, As an undergraduate, I studied Latin and Greek at Carleton College. Uh, And as a graduate student, I studied Library Science at Simmons College and Medieval Jewish History and Philosophy at Harvard University. So I guess you could say that after studying classical antiquity as an undergraduate and medieval history as a graduate student, uh, it was new and exciting for me to Start doing research on on, on the modern uh, historical period. Uh, I moved to Israel about twenty five years ago with my wife and three children, uh, and we live just outside of Jerusalem.
0: What inspired you to prepare this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers?
1: Well, I became I became interested in the story of the Cyprus detention camps uh, in two thousand and ten when I became the director of the JDC archive in Jerusalem. Um, Maybe at this point I should say a few words about the historical background um, of the the Cyprus camps. And to understand that background, uh, we have to turn the clock back to the mid-1940s. In the second half of 1944 and the first half of 1945, the Nazi death camps were were finally liberated by the the Allies. And with the liberation of those camps, countless thousands of of Jewish survivors streamed out of Europe and tried to reach the land of Israel. Uh, At the same time, the British, who of course had a mandate from the League of Nations to administer Palestine, The British stood firmly behind their White Paper of 1939, which put rigid limitations on Jewish immigration to mandatory Palestine. The collision of these two groups, the, I would say the inevitable collision of these two groups, took place in August 1946, when the British intercepted two ships of Jewish would-be immigrants and deported the immigrants to a a hastily built camp, detention camp um, on the nearby island of Cyprus. Um, Cyprus, I should mention was at the time a crown colony, uh, a British crown colony. So it was available, it was available for such a purpose. Um, So the Jewish survivors continued to stream out of Europe, and sailed on rickety ships uh, in an attempt to reach the land of Israel. The British continued intercepting the Jewish ships and deporting their passengers to Cyprus. Uh, and so, as, the, as, as, uh, as these things continued, uh, to to occur, um, the number of camps grew. Initially, there was just one camp. In August of 1946, there was just one camp, Camp 55, just north of Famagusta. Um, but by January of 1948, uh, there were 12 camps, and there were 31,000 detainees in the camps. Uh, and just to put that number thirty-one thousand into perspective, um, in January 1948, those thirty-one thousand Jewish detainees in the camps outnumbered the residents in the capital city of Cyprus, which was Nicos- which was and still is Nicosia. So, so now let me talk a bit about the the division of the camps. They, Often oftentimes people speak of two clusters of camps. There were the summer camps near Famagusta, just north of Famagusta. There were five camps in that cluster. Uh, and um, and um, as I said, that cluster is situated just north of the port city of Famagusta and the, the city of Carals. Um, there was a second cluster of camps. Consisting uh, of seven camps, uh, and that cluster is, is referred to as the Winter Camps. Um, and this cluster was located to the north and east of the city of Larnaca. Um, the camps were surrounded by a double row of barbed wire, by armed guards and watchtowers and searchlights. Um, the British insisted that I saw many documents in in the in the UK National Archives in Kew, the British insisted, the British instructed their troops not to refer to the camps as concentration camps. But um, it's interesting if you listen to the oral testimonies of the former British troops, um, you will see that they frequently use the term concentration camps. Um I guess it's just a question of definition, but at any case, in any event, the, the camps were surrounded by barbed wire, there were armed guards, there were powerful searchlights. Conditions in the camps were very tough. Uh, they were they were difficult. The housing was inadequate, the food was meager, uh privacy was, was non non-existent. Maybe on the subject of housing, I should just say a few words. In the summer camps, most of the detainees were housed in tents, army-issued tents, uh, which were not bad for the summertime, but of course, were horribly inadequate in the wintertime. And in the winter camps, the detainees were housed in tin huts, uh, metal huts, uh, called nissen huts, Uh, and once again, um, those, those hats were, were terribly inadequate. Uh, they were, they were sweltering, uh, during the summer months. Uh, altogether, some 52,000 Jews passed through the camps and about 2000 babies were born in the camps. Most of them were born in the, the British military hospital in Nicosia. Um, in terms of demographics, the majority of the deportees were young between the ages of 13 and 35. Nearly all of them were survivors of the Nazi death camps. Uh, The detainees were from dozens of countries, and they spoke dozens of languages. Probably the language that was most common in the camps was Yiddish, uh, which was fine for the majority of Jews. But for Jews from North Africa, for example, who spoke only Arabic and French, that presented a big problem. Um, The camps were closed in February 1949, uh, meaning that they were in existence for about 30 months. The detainees were disturbed by many many things. I mentioned the housing, the food, the privacy. But I think the thing that disturbed them the most was the presence of German POWs uh, in a nearby camp uh, on the island of Cyprus. And it was bad enough that the former Nazis were living nearby and that they actually had been employed by the British to build the camps for the Jews. But on top of all that, to add insult to injury, the German POWs enjoyed a great, a much greater degree of freedom uh, than the Jewish detainees did. The German POWs were not heavily guarded, and they were able to go yeah, incredibly, they were able to go to nightclubs in Famagusta uh, in their free time after their after they had completed their day jobs. Um, I even read that the the British employed German POWs as ski instructors uh, as the British officers learned to ski in the Trudos Mountains of Cyprus. Um, well, not surprisingly, there were clashes between the Jewish detainees and the German POWs. Um, unfortunately, my efforts to find additional information about these clashes uh, has not yet yielded fruit. But um, it's it's an uh, important, sad but important uh, aspect of the of the history of the Cyprus camps. Maybe one last point. This period in history is sometimes referred to as a as a liminal period. The term liminal liminality comes to us from the field of anthropology, and it refers to the middle stages of a of a ritual where things are uh, Im- ambiguous, uh, disorientation prevails today the term re- today the term refers to a, a sort of an in-between period uh, between the old order and the new order the old order has broken down uh, or has been destroyed in this case and the new order has yet to be established
0: what are the primary contents in your book can you tell us about the information and details that your book addresses <laughs>
1: I have a bulletin board in my office with a quotation from from Descartes, Uh, and I looked at that quotation every day while I was writing my book. Uh, The quotation from his Discourse on Method reads, divide each problem into as many parts as possible, that each part being more easily conceived, the whole may be more intelligible. And the idea is that you divide the problem when you, when you divide a problem into as many parts as possible, you accomplish really two things. Number one, you understand that that specific part very very well. Um, but the other thing you accomplish is that you gain a, a better understanding of how that specific part fits into the whole. And that was that was my guiding principle. When when you when you pick up my book you see that there's a chapter on chronology, there's a chapter on biographies, a chapter on acronyms, uh, there's a chapter on the 39 ships uh, that were intercepted and whose passengers were deported to Cyprus, and so on and so forth. Um, So I guess I tried to divide the story of the Cyprus camps into as many parts as possible. So for example, the researcher who wants to know what happened to the camps in the summer of 1947, can find that answer quickly and quickly and easily. Or the researcher who wants to know, uh, when did Golda Meir visit camps? Well, once again, the researcher can put his or her finger on that answer without any difficulty. Or to take one other example, the researcher who is curious about the acronym IJI, um, can can look in in my manual and see, and see what it stands for. In this case, uh, I should point out the British British use that acronym, the IJI, to refer to illegal Jewish immigrants, and Moore's Lab of the JDC used the same acronym to refer to intercepted Jewish immigrants. So, at any rate, that was my guiding principle, and that is how I. I structured the book. There are. I should. I should add at this point. There are. There are two scholarly books in Hebrew uh, about the camps, uh, and of course they're buying scholarly works, but they are uh, organized, I would say, uh, conceptually, uh, and it's not often easy to find answers to. The questions that I just suggested. Uh, you check these books, and it's very difficult. You have to go to the index and look up, in the case of Golda Meir, you have to look up, uh, you know, you're presented in the index with uh, 20 different pages on which the name Golda Meir uh, is mentioned. And then you have to go through the pages one by one to try to find that information that you need. So they're not structured. Uh in such a way that the researcher who is looking for a quick and, you know, as I said, a quick and easy answer, um that's structured so that a researcher is able to put his or her finger on that information quickly.
0: How did you become interested in the Cyprus detention camps?
1: Um I became interested in the story in 2010 when I became the director of the uh, the JDC archive in, in Jerusalem, um, and as I uh, as I went through the 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 archive in Jerusalem, as I went through the Cyprus collection in the in the in the JDC archive, um, it immediately became clear to me uh, that while the joint archive does have some important information, it does not by any means have the full story, but perhaps I should interrupt myself at this point and say a few words about the JDC, because that's, after all, that is where I was working. Uh, The JDC is commonly called the Joint, but uh, the full name is the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. Uh, The JDC calls itself the leading Jewish humanitarian organization. It was founded in 1914 to assist to assist um, starving Jews in what was then Ottoman era Palestine. So the JDC is, is over a hundred years old at this point. Um, and during the course of that century of work, it has operated in scores of countries around the world. Uh, I've heard as many as 70, 80, 90 countries. Um, because it is an American non-political organization, uh, the JDC was allowed by the British to work in the Cyprus camps. The British were very wary about letting in outside bodies, but they were finally convinced that an American organization, and in particular an American uh, non-political organization, uh, would be acceptable. Uh The JDC was very active in the Cyprus camps. Uh, It provided food, medical supplies, clothing, educational materials. Uh, Basically, I mean, the the British Army provided the bare essentials, shall we say. The JDC came in and provided a great deal of supplementary uh, material. Uh, At its peak, the JDC staff in Cyprus uh, numbered about one hundred people: nurses, doctors, dentists, teachers, social workers, uh, and so on and so forth. You know, in the in the in general, in the course of its humanitarian work, the JDC amasses a great deal of documentation. In some cases, the, the documentation is generated by the joint. In Other cases, it's generated by or in other cases, it's it's received from the joint receives that material from uh, outside institutions. Um, And, and the material that it that it amasses is stored in the in the JDC archives. The JDC archive is what is called an institutional archive. Um, It collects material uh, that was generated by the by the institution or received Uh, by the institution. Uh, In contrast, there are collecting archives, for example, the US Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, DC, is a collecting archive, it collects the archives of, of, uh, of other institutions. You know, there's one common misconception about archives, and probably I should, I should clear it up uh, right away. Uh, you know people say ah you're an archivist well that that means you like to collect things <laughs> well that's true collecting is an important is an important part of archival work but it's only one part it's only one function of archival work collecting is one function uh, another function is organizing the material and uh, in the case of a smaller archive, they may use a, a relational database of some sort. Uh, in the case of a large institution, uh, they will probably use uh, an integrated archival system. Um, another important function, another important function of archival work, is preserving material. Uh-huh. Um, for example. Um, material, fragile material from the Cyprus camps was moved to acid-free folders and acid-free boxes um, for, for, preser- for preservation purposes. And then finally, the fourth function of an archive is to provide access to the material um, to the public. Typically, uh, this is done by using a computer system uh, that can be accessed by the public over the world wide web um, and I should point out here it's 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 enormously helpful to the researcher when the, the material has been scanned and digitized but in addition to that it's enormously helpful if that information can be accessed over the web um, and for example for example there's there's very important archival material from the Cyprus camps in the u.s holocaust memorial museum in washington dc and i haven't visited that particular museum uh, but its material has been scanned and it's been digitized and it is available over the web so i can sit at home i can sit in the national library in jerusalem and click 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 i can download Uh, very nice scans of those documents. In contrast, uh, there's a government office in Nicosia, Cyprus, I think it's called the Public Affairs Office, Uh, and they have a database of digitized Cypriot newspapers. And I, I should say parenthetically, the interface for searching that database was developed in Israel And I'm very familiar with that interface because I used it extensively uh, when I was searching um, back issues of the Palestine Post and other other Hebrew newspapers. Um, The first time I was at the public affairs office in Nicosia, a staff member kindly offered to show me how to work the interface. And I politely explained that I was well familiar with the interface because I had used it in the past. But at any rate, I've been to the public affairs office in Nicosia and I've used that interface and I have searched for back issues of Cypriot newspapers. But that database is not connected to the web. So you have to go physically to Nicosia Cyprus uh, in order to search back issues of those uh, Cypriot newspapers. it's a it was a great first step on their part to have scanned and digitized these old newspapers. Uh, but uh, hopefully one day they will move on to the next step, which is to put that, make you know, to make that, that those scans and, and those scanned documents on the
0: web. Can you contextualize the Cyprus camps for us? Can you describe their origins? Can you describe their evolution?
1: Certainly well, the, the British um, the British were trying very hard uh, in the 1940s to curtail Jewish immigration to mandatory Palestine again. The, the British uh, who had the mandate from the League of Nations to administer, to administer Palestine. And the British were very eager to curtail Jewish immigration to Palestine, Um, and in their White Paper of 1938, 1939, excuse me, which is also known as the McDonald uh, White Paper, uh, they set very rigid limits on Jewish immigration to to Palestine. one of the one of the measures they employed to curtail or to discourage Jewish immigration to Palestine was to uh, to uh, to to exercise to um, I'm thinking of the Hebrew word, but I have to think of the English word. They wanted to uh, exert influence. They tried to put pressure on the countries from which, uh, Jewish immigrants were leaving to go to, to to go to Mandatory Palestine. Another method used by the British uh, was to sabotage. There was they went so far as to sabotage uh, ships that they knew were going to be used um, by Jewish immigrants, and and one of the Pan ships, one of the huge Pan ships with seven thousand five hundred passengers was in fact laid up for several months because it had been sabotaged uh, by the British. Uh, another method used by the British, uh, it, it backfired, uh, backfired very, very strongly, uh, was to send the Jewish immigrants back to their country of origin. And of course, the, 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 the key example of this is the ship, the Exodus, which brought uh, many thousands of Jewish would-be immigrants to, to Israel. It was intercepted by the British and the British sent it back first to France and then uh, after that to Germany. Uh, and of course, there was a huge backlash in the court of world opinion uh, that the British were sending these these miserable, you know, these poor, miserable, homeless, Holocaust survivors back to the country which had instigated, which had uh, you know instigated the Holocaust, Um, and the camps were 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 the the fourth the fourth method. Uh, They wanted to they wanted to discourage Jewish immigration to Mandatory Palestine, and what they did is okay. We'll we'll send we'll send these people to will send these people to to these camps in Cyprus where the water is not plentiful and the food is meager and the housing is inadequate and so on and so forth. And hopefully, you know, and, and the British hope was that uh, that would discourage uh, Jewish immigration to mandatory Palestine. Of course, it did not. Jewish immigration to to Palestine continued. Uh, you know, it was full steam ahead. And ultimately, the the British had to concede defeat. Uh, They 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 um, they removed their troops uh, from from Palestine in May of 1948. And some months later, uh, the camps were were formally closed down. Why? Why were they closed down only six months, uh, seven, eight months? After the state of Israel was created, well, that's a question that uh, that is a good example of a question that I do not address in my book. I do not address in my book. I try to steer away from the why questions. Okay? I concentrate on the who, the what, the where, and the when. Uh, and my hope is that if we can, um, if we can, you know get those questions right, then scholars will be able to take the answers to those questions and formulate uh, their, their answers to the why questions, okay? Uh, so for example, you know, my book addresses who, who built the camps, for whom were the camps built? When were the camps built? Uh, where were the camps built? um and i'm leaving i i leave out the why question i intentionally left out the why question
0: when were the camps built how long were they in existence can you tell us about the process of building the camps
1: sure sure the the camps were built rather hastily in august of 1946 um, they closed down in February of 1949. So they were in existence for about 30 months. Um, it's not entirely clear who built the camps. I believe it was the, the British, uh, the Royal engineers of the British army. I've seen a reference to that, to that effect. Um, but I have yet to see the definitive documentation on that point. Um, the winter camps, as I think I mentioned earlier, the winter camps, um, near closer to Larnaca, um, were in fact built, some of them were built by German POWs. And that was a tremendous source of, of, um, uh, more than frustration, it was anger, bitterness. The, the Jewish detainees were very bitter, having having spent years in German built camps in Europe. They were very bitter that they had to in Cyprus. They had to go once again into camps that were built by by Germans. Um, I
0: I hope that answers your question. Absolutely. How many camps were there?
1: Um, there were twelve camps. Um, in two clusters uh five camps um near Famagusta north of Famagusta and seven camps uh in the in the cluster of called the winter camps um it's interesting the 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 geography of the camps is really is really a topic that has been sorely neglected um, I mean, it's 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 known. It's generally speaking, it's known. Okay, there were five camps north of Famagusta, the summer camps, and there were seven camps in the in the cluster called the winter camps. That the, the sort of the general general idea is is clear. Uh, but when you go looking um, for specifics about the about the location of the camps uh it's it was it was frankly it was a very frustrating uh, exercise for me that was probably the most difficult chapter in the book that i wrote um because there are no detailed maps uh of the camps uh it's surprising it's very surprising um the only explanation i can give is that well I mentioned that there are two scholarly books about the about the Cyprus camps. Uh, the author of each, each of those works uh, was in Cyprus. In, one, in, the, in the first case, Dr. Shaari was a teacher in Cyprus, in the Cyprus camps. And in the second case, uh, Dr. Bogner was a, a young 13-year-old. He was a young teenager in the Cyprus camps. And it could very well be that for them, it was obvious. They were there. They had seen it. Uh, I guess it's like, you know, someone who grew up in Manhattan. They, they're they not going to explain, you know, they don't feel the need to explain where the Lower East Side is. Well, I guess the name is sort of, <laughs> sort of tells the, the story. But they don't feel the need to explain, you know, where Delancey Street is or where Broadway Street is. It, it's, it was, uh, you know, self-evident to them. There's actually on the subject of geography. There's this one wow stunning mistake. There's one stunning mistake in Dr. Shaari's book, which was the first book published, I believe, in 1981. Dr. Shaari uh, has a map on the on the dust cover of his book. With uh, I guess on the back cover of the of the dust cover, uh, there's a map of Cyprus, and he actually places. These summer camps to the south of Famagusta, which is wow, an, an egregious mistake. Um, and um, again, I, I think it just wasn't uh, it wasn't deemed that important, or that significant uh, to to you know to, to delimit to, to to demark to 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 pinpoint the exact location of the camps. Uh, but obviously for for scholars today, it is a very, you know, very. It's it is a it it is it is of great interest. Um, and one, one, um, one letter seems to suggest that there was a ten-minute walk between camps sixty-nine and seventy, and another report says it was, uh, you know, five kilometers. It's it's important. Um. It's important to, to, you know, for the researcher to pin this down and to, to get exact locations. I go so far in my book as to say, look, uh, I have one chapter in the book called uh, "Misconceptions and Mysteries and Misconceptions, something like that. And I go so far as to say that, look, if we can't find detailed maps of the camps, that archeological excavation should be conducted so that we can pinpoint their exact their precise locations. Um, So once again, I hope that answers your question.
0: How many detainees were there altogether? Who were the detainees? Uh,
1: The number fluctuated. Initially, there were a thousand or so. Uh, But as I said, as the, as the, as the, Jewish immigration movement uh picked up steam uh more and more ships and you know and more and more more and more ships sailed for Israel and more and more ships were intercepted by the british and and their passengers were deported to Cyprus um, um, uh, the number eventually reached a peak of thirty one thousand um. Altogether, they say that 52,000 people passed through passed through the Cyprus camps. Um, the the average stay in Cyprus was about uh, I mentioned it in my book around uh, eight months or so. Um, some people were in Cyprus for only a few months, only four months. Uh, other people were in Cyprus for Uh, 20 months. Um, In general, there was a policy, the British announced a policy in December 1946, that 750 people would be allowed to leave the Cyprus camps every month. And, and the policy was that it was it was it was a a first come first serve policy. That is people on the first ships uh, to, to arrive in Cyprus, uh, were the first to leave. Uh, obviously there were, there were exceptions for medical cases or other special cases. Um, but that, that was the general, that was the general flow, if you will.
0: Can you tell us about the Joint Distribution Committee? Why does it have a collection of material from the Cyprus camps? Where does it store it's cypress material, right?
1: Well, the, the Cyprus material, because because the joint um, has been active in so many countries around the world. Uh, and as like I said, it, it's it, because it um, it collects material in the course of in, in the course of its humanitarian work, it collects, it generates a great deal of material and it collects a great deal of material so all of this material collected uh goes into the jdc archive um the the jdc archive the 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 major archival center is in jerusalem there is a smaller archive jdc archive in in new york um and um i think i mentioned the fact that the JDC Archive is an institutional archive, as opposed to a collecting archive like the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. Um, and um, it, I'm reminded as you as you as as you ask the question, I'm reminded of, of something that that uh, caught my eye in the Cyprus collection. Shortly after I was hired by the Joint to to serve as the director of the Jerusalem Archives. I saw something in the Cyprus collection that that really piqued my interest. Uh, It was a letter. It was a short, handwritten letter. It was in Hebrew. Um, The letter was written by a nurse named Esther Natan. She was a an employee of the JDC. And she wrote the letter, she addressed the letter to Morris Lab, who was the head of the JDC in Cyprus. Uh, And in the letter, she asked to be relieved of her nursing duties uh, so that she could return to mandatory Palestine. And why did she want to return? Well, She explains in the letter that there were two terrible events. First of all, her parents' home uh, in Jerusalem had been destroyed, there was a, a bombing on Ben Yehuda Street in Jerusalem uh, in February of 1948. I think about 60 people were killed, 130 injured, terrible bombing. And the other disaster that had that had befallen her was that her only sibling, a brother, had been killed in the Battle of Kfaritziyah in uh in May of 1948. Um interesting. I don't know what Lao decided. Okay, we have the JDC archive has a copy of the letter that the joint received, that the JDC received from Esther Natan. It does not hold a copy of the letter of, of Morris Lab's response to the nurse. Um, so it's not clear. I mean, Esther Nathan's name, this this nurse's name, does appear on a list of this of the JDC employees in Cyprus in September of 1948. And when the camps closed in February of 1949, Morris Laub sent out a lot of letters thanking people for their service. And from the letter he sent to Esther Natan, it would seem, it's it appears that she did not interrupt her service, that she continued straight on. Um, but this actually uh, raises an important point, and that is, the JDC archive has half of the story, really. In this case, they have the let they have this the the, the 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 letter that they received that it received that the JDC archive received, but it does not hold uh, a copy of the letter that was sent out. And I can't imagine that Morris Laub did not respond to this letter. I'm 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 certain he did. Um, so anyway, that short letter i mean it's only 50 or 60 words long for me it really it really got me it, it, that letter contains a, a world of pathos i mean you know the family home was destroyed her only sibling was killed she wants to go home to her parents i mean it's 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 a very moving letter so um so that that's what first caught my eye and it also to me it drove home the importance even the necessity of looking at events in Cyprus you know within the broader context, in, the, in this case the, in the context of uh, events that took place in that took place outside of Cyprus in, 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 in mandatory Palestine, in England, in the United States, wherever. the, the events in Cyprus must be seen uh, in, in that broader context.
0: What in the Cyprus collection? First piqued your interest?
1: I would say, yeah, that 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 letter. That letter of Esther Natan, that's what first piqued my interest. Um that um again that 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 really you know hit me on a on a very visceral level. Uh and it also, uh, the more I thought about it, it really demonstrated it it drove home the, the the necessity of looking at events in Cyprus you know within the broader context um and also it 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 demonstrated to me one other thing i, I should say it demonstrated to me that the that the, the Cyprus collection uh of the JDC uh does not tell the whole story i mean you know look at the case of in in the case of that letter of Esther Natan. We have the letter that she wrote, that she sent to the JDC, um, but we don't have the response. I can give you another example. Um, I mentioned that about 2,000 babies were born to the Jewish detainees in Cyprus. Most of them were born in the British military hospital in Nicosia. The JDC archive contains lists of the babies, weekly lists of the babies who were born to the Jewish detainees in the B.M.H. the British Military Hospital in Nicosia, and th- those lists, those weekly lists, were were sent out by a Brit- a medical officer in the British Army. The J.D.Z. archives contain holds about twenty such lists, and they contain a number of uh, they could. Contain uh, approximately five hundred names. Well, that sounds very impressive uh, until you remember that there were two thousand babies born in the camps. So, in other words, uh, only a quarter—the lists in the JDA and JDC archive contain only a quarter uh, 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 of the of the of the names of the babies who were born in the camps. Um, I I should also point out that the the first list held by the JDC archive is from August of 1948. But wait a second. The camps were opened in August of 1946, two years early. The first baby was born in the camps in September of 1946. So in other words, there's a two-year gap there. Um, there's a two-year period for which we have no information. So, and who knows what happened to those lists? Were they, were they discarded? Did somebody think they were simply not important? Who knows? Um, But uh, it it was clear to me, it became clear to me that the JDC's Cypress collection did not tell the whole story. And I found sometime later, I found as I was writing, researching my book, I found an interview that Morris Lab, again, Morris Lab was the director of the JDC archive. And um, he was the one who directed the JDC's uh, humanitarian aid efforts in Cyprus. Uh, and in this interview, Morris Loud laments the fact that he did not work harder to preserve documents for for, for future historians. And as a matter of fact, um, he called himself a fool. He said, I'm a fool for having neglected to save important documents. So because I, I because i i saw the the gaps uh in the jdc archive in jerusalem i started to go on to i started to investigate uh, the, the cyprus holdings in other archives primarily in israel and in england and cyprus
0: did you find the joint distribution committee's cyprus collection to be comprehensive do you feel that a researcher can get a full picture of the cypress story from the jdc's collection
1: no definitely definitely not the full story um um, there are many gaps and you know as a matter of fact Ari, when i when i was there i heard rumors from time to time that a large part of the of the cypress collection had been destroyed had been damaged uh, it had been stored in a warehouse somewhere and water damage uh, caused much of it to to be damaged and it was discarded. Uh, and that, uh, you know, I have no proof of that, obviously. These were just rumors. But, you know, it, it would explain why, uh, you know, why we have, for example, only, you know, we have lists for only 500 of the 2000 babies born. In Cyprus, um, and by the way, that that first list in the JDC archive uh, from August 1948 begins with the serial number one thousand I think 1,200 and something, 1,228. Um, so it doesn't seem likely. I, it, it doesn't seem likely that British started sending out lists with baby, you know, 1,229 or whatever. Um those lists no doubt were created from day one and for whatever reason they were not they were not preserved. They were they were discarded perhaps. They were they were lost.
0: Who knows? Where else did you find material from the Cyprus camps, pertaining to the camps? How would you characterize the holdings of those archived libraries and museums?
1: Well, I started I started my search in Israel. And I found that there was original material, primary documents from the Cyprus camps uh, in probably a dozen archives, libraries, and museums in Israel. In Jerusalem, I can mention just a few. In Jerusalem, there's a, the, the State Archives has some very interesting material. The National Library in Jerusalem has some original material. Uh, there's the Central Zionist Archives, the Yad Vashem Archive in, in Jerusalem has original material. Um, and then outside of material, there's a great deal of material at the Pinchas Lavon Archive in Tel Aviv. And then up in the north, in Atlet, uh there is uh, an information and research center with a great deal of material uh, primarily about the, about the detainees in the camps. Uh, so that's just the material in Israel um after after exploring that material uh i went to england and i examined the holdings of the national archives in Kew. now the national archives to their to their credit they have a a very fine um catalog which lists um which lists the, the the materials held um, the only problem, the only problem is that those catalog records are frequently uh, incomplete. They don't they don't, you know, they'll they'll say that uh, there's some vague title, you know, quarterly historical report or something like that. Uh, but obviously, when a record says that, you know, the, the file contains the quarterly historical report, that doesn't tell you very much. You have to physically, you have to physically order the file and to examine it to see what it really contains. Um, and then finally, um, and you know, I should just say that in the National Archives in Kew, there is some very, very interesting material. I did find some very interesting material there. I mean, for example, uh, in, in the summer of, in, the, in August of 1947, the British decided to release 500 orphans from the Cyprus camps. And of course, they said in their press releases that this was a humanitarian move. This is a humanitarian gesture. And they were doing this because they were great humanitarians. I mean, this is what they said in their in their press releases. Uh, if you look at the files in, in queue, you see that, uh, in fact, there were two concerns. The British had two concerns about uh, you know, uh, two reasons for letting those 500 orphans go. Yes, there, were, there was the humanitarian concern, but more importantly, uh, they wanted to look good in the eyes of UNSCOP. UNSCOP was the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine, which was then visiting mandatory Palestine, and UNSCOP, the, the, this UN committee, was given the task of making recommendations about the future... Uh, you know the post-mandate future of of Palestine, uh, and the other consideration that was mentioned that you see mentioned in these files is uh, they wanted to thin out the camps. There were too many people. They didn't. They they didn't want to. They didn't want to f- feed and 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 house and care for thirty thousand people. Um, well, at that point they were probably only about twenty four thousand, but. You get the point. Um, anyway, so publicly, publicly, you you say that ah, it's it's, uh, it's 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 for humanitarian reasons. If you but if you sit in queue and you go through the files, um, you see that there are actually two other. There were there were two there were two real considerations. As I said, one was they wanted to thin out the camps, and the other thing is they wanted to score uh, points with UNSCOP, the United Nations uh, Special Committee. Uh, that was then in Palestine, um, and then anyway, finally, uh, after after going to England, I went to Cyprus, and I examined the holdings of the State Archives in Nicosia. Um, the, uh, it was disappointing because there were really only a dozen or so files in this the the Cyprus State Archives uh, relating to the camps, uh, and my feeling is that in 1960. Before the British granted independence to Cyprus, uh, they cleared out the most valuable files. Um, maybe many of the not so valuable files as well. They took it. They took it all back to London. Um, so Cyprus, it was fun to go to Cyprus, and it was interesting. And it's only a forty-five minute trip from Israel, but uh, there was really very very little. Information of you know that could that could help me in the Cyprus State Archives, but I did as I did mention in the press office in that Public Affairs Office in Nicosia, uh, I was able to sit there and to search um, search you know of for back issues of Cypriot newspapers, and that was very useful. And I guess that uh, for that reason alone, it was worth going to Cyprus. I guess there's on the subject of of the various archives, um, you know, in addition to the institutional archives and the collecting archives, uh, there are many private archives, uh, that is archives held by private individuals uh, here in Israel. Uh, This material is sometimes extremely, extremely valuable, precious, um, but sadly, it's not known to researchers. I mean, when when private archive is tucked away in somebody's uh, basement or in somebody's uh, you know uh, under their bed, uh, it's not known to researchers. It's not known to the broader public. Uh, of course, it's not available online. It hasn't been scanned and digitized, and it's not available via the web. And uh, <laughs> Another very, very serious problem is that it's kept oftentimes in atrocious storage conditions. I mean, As an archivist, I shudder when I, when I think of the storage conditions uh, for these private archival collections. Um, I mean, I remember uh, in one case, I saw rare notebooks from the Cyprus camps that were being kept in a box on a shelf above a refrigerator. Uh, And of course, there, they were exposed to wild fluctuations in light, humidity, temperature, uh, not to mention that the box was uh, probably highly acidic. Um, I mean, in another case, a gentleman who was born in the Cyprus camps told me that he had an extensive collection of photographs from the Cyprus camps. His father had apparently worked as a he had supported himself. He'd made a little pocket uh, money by working as a photographer in the Cypress camps. And when I asked him where those photo- photographs were today, he said, oh, they're in a suitcase under my bed. Okay, well, the same thing. If they're in a suitcase under the bed, they're not available. They're not available to the public. They're they're uh, not available over the bed. And... They are stored in in really abysmal uh storage
0: conditions. What was your guiding principle in researching this book?
1: You know, as I as I think I mentioned, you know, I've got this quotation from Descartes, you know, I'm tacked up on my on my bulletin board and you know, divide each problem into as many parts as possible. And and that was really that was really my guiding principle. Um because as as, as, as when you do that, when you divide a problem into as many parts, a problem into as many parts as, as, as feasible, you accomplish two things. You you get to know that part very, very well, obviously. But in addition to that, you you learn, uh, you gain a better understanding of how that part fits into the overall picture. Um, so you pick up my book and you say there's a chapter on on on." On uh, chronology, there's a chapter on biographies, a chapter on acronyms, uh, a chapter on maps. Um, the idea is that is that uh, you do, again, you divide the problem into as many parts as possible, so that you can gain a better understanding not only of the individual part but of the of the whole. There's there's one chapter that um, that at, at the end of the book called misconceptions. And, uh, I mean, the other chapters are sort of self-explanatory. Sure, there's a chapter on maps. We, you know, we would expect that. And sure, there's a chapter of, of biography, Sure, that, you know, we... But I decided to include at the end of my book a chapter of, of misconceptions. For example, uh, there's a misconception that the Cyprus camps were DP camps. No, they weren't DP camps. A DP camp is, 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 a, is a displaced person camp. Uh, A displaced person is someone who has been displaced by a natural uh, calamity or by war or something along those lines. No, the Cyprus camps were not DP camps. They were detention camps. Um, And there's another chapter called Mysteries. Um, And I'll just quickly mention a couple of these mysteries. First mystery is where are the maps of the camps? Um, there really are very, very few maps of the camps. Uh, where are the medical records of, uh, of, uh, of 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 a certain doctor who was at, who was, who was active in the camps? Um, where are the letters and diaries and memoirs of the of the detainees who were from North Africa? Um, and one other mystery I could mention is, uh, I said are, are there are there records from the Cyprus camps in Israeli governmental archives? There have been rumors again only rumors that some records were when the, when the camps were closed that some records were transferred to uh, to Israel to Israeli governmental archives and and the the um, the archives the Israeli governmental archives most frequently mentioned are the he started the name the Ministry of the Interior and uh, the Rabbinut, the, 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 the rabbinical uh, um, uh, ministry, the Ministry of the rabbinate. Um, and these are mysteries. And um, hopefully, these mysteries will be cleared up um, either uh, by myself uh, in, 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 the, in a future edition of the book, or by other scholars. Um, these 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 are really these are these are, are really uh, mysteries that could be handed out. A professor could hand them out to uh, his or her students and say, "Take this. Here's a mystery. Uh, the author of this uh, of this book, who spent you know close to ten years writing the book, uh, he couldn't find the answer. Try to find the answer. This is your assignment." So that that was my
0: guiding principle. What was your aim in writing this book?
1: My aim, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a phrase that, that scholars sometimes use. Um, and the phrase is vade mekom. Uh, literally, it means go with me. And a vade mecum originally was a manual or a guidebook that could fit into your pocket. You know, it's something you could take with you. So it. So it uh, it was a one volume, uh, one, vo- one a single volume, containing all the information you needed on a certain subject. Today, uh, a vade mecum refers to a single volume that provides a comprehensive um, A to Z guide uh, to a particular subject. Okay, so originally it referred to something that you put in your pocket. Obviously, in in our digital age. Uh, A digital book, uh, an audio book, is not something that you can put into your pocket. Um, So today it it refers to the comprehensive nature of the work. Um, In any case, I wanted to create a comprehensive guide that would cover both the internal affairs of the camps and the external forces that molded life in the camps. You know, as I said earlier, Think about that letter of Esther Natan. She's talking about wanting to be relieved of her nursing duties in Cyprus. And why? Because of the events in mandatory Palestine, the destruction of her parents' home and the and the death of her brother uh, in the in this in this battle. Um, so it's important, I think, to to to, it was important as I wrote the book to include both things, both the internal affairs plus the, plus the external forces that, that shaped life in the camps. Um, in searching for sources, I tried to cast a very, very wide net. You know, I sought out obviously primary sources, letters, diaries, memoirs. I sought out visual materials, photographs, uh, historical film footage newspapers obviously and maps to the extent that i could find them but in addition to these sort of the standard sources i sought out um, i sought out material in admittedly unusual sources uh, i looked at material in i found very interesting material in auction catalogs uh, i even found some interesting material in philatelic journals and in, in, in journals about stamp collectives there was, believe it or not, there was a major uh, who was the commander of one of the 12 camps. And this major was a, an avid stamp collector. And he wrote uh, a few very, very interesting articles, very revealing articles about his experience in the camps. Um, and part of the article, I mean, a big part of the article is about, it's about the about the way the stamps were were uh, the stamps that were used and how they were canceled and so on and so forth. But uh, the introductory paragraphs are very interesting about his responsibilities, and how he related to the to the detainees, and so on and so forth. So, uh, again, I tried to cast a very wide net. Um, the documents I found were in primarily in English, French, Yiddish, and Hebrew, mostly English, Yiddish, and Hebrew. Uh, And they're located in many countries, Israel, Cyprus, England, uh, Canada, and the United States. Um, And once again, I, I, as I think I mentioned before, I concentrated on four basic questions, the who, who built the camps, who were the detainees, the what, you know what were the physical conditions in the camps? The when? When were the camps built? When were they? When were they closed? And where? Uh, where were the camps located? I intentionally tried to stay away from the why question, um, because that question, in my opinion, that question has to be dealt with after, can only be dealt with, uh, you know, successfully, productively. When the who, what, when, where questions have been answered uh, thoroughly, and just one last thing, I, I in my book I, I tried very hard to to stay away from terms such as massacre and, and terrorist. Um, I tried to avoid uh, assigning blame. Uh, in other words, I wasn't I wasn't trying to promote one particular narrative over another. Um, and if you think about it, phrases such as, you know, they succeeded in sabotaging, or they succeeded in escaping, I mean, you see these free, these phrases all too frequently in the literature on the Cyprus camps. But such phrases only serve to inflame, they don't serve to, to inform. So the bottom line, my aim, my aim was to create a guide That could be used by a very wide range of scholars, journalists, uh, students uh, in Israel, Great Britain, Cyprus, uh, and around the world.
0: What were some of the problems you encountered as you conducted your research?
1: Um, I think probably the major problem I encountered was that so many historical records from the Cyprus camps were lost destroyed over the decades some cases maybe they were thrown out uh, they, they were water damaged as I mentioned earlier uh, um, and that's that's a that's a very that was that was very I think I mentioned earlier that um, um that, that the UK National Archive in que holds very few records of the day-to-day administration of the camp cabinet discussions there's there's plenty of information. Um, the liberations in the Colonial office or the Foreign Office about uh, you know the pros and cons of letting the five hundred orphans leave Cyprus in august forty seven there's plenty of plenty of you know plenty of documentation there in queue about that. but documents about the day-to-day administration of the camps almost you, you don't you don't you don't see those records. Strongly suspect that the British destroyed those records. Uh, either they felt they weren't important, or perhaps they wanted they they were trying to uh, avoid uh, providing uh, ammunition to people interested in taking legal action. I, and so that that concerns those records that we that we don't have. Concerning the records that we do have, the records that are extant. Uh, I think there are two major problems. First of all, uh, the records are frequently fragment, fragmentary. Um, and I've, I think I've previously given the example of the weekly lists of births in the British Military Hospital in Nicosia. The JDC archive holds, what did I say, about 20 lists with about 500 names. Well, that's great, except that's only one quarter of the weekly list. Three quarters is gone. Okay, and nobody else. uh, I was hoping that I would find those missing uh, weekly lists in Q, in the UK National Archive, but they don't have. They apparently don't have them. And there's another problem, and that is the the extant sources are frequently tendentious. Uh, They're biased. Um, I'll give you I'll give you one specific example. In the in the UK National Archives in Q, they have many files with quarterly historical reports. And it sounds, uh, if you pick up one report, it you certainly get the impression of, of that quarterly historical report being very official and authoritative and a solid source of information. I mean, it has a very impressive title, right? But mm-hmm. if, you, if you sit and read many of those reports, uh, as I did, you see that they are consistently and strongly biased in favor of the British position, the British administration of the camps, the British uh, the British position. According to these reports, these quarterly historical reports, the British always succeeded in capturing Jewish detainees who had escaped from the camps. The British were always victorious, when they played soccer games against the Jewish uh, detainees and so forth. Uh, you know, I got the impression as I was reading these quarterly historical reports that they were written by some junior British officer um, who was trying to curry favor with his commanding officer. Um, so at any rate, those are the two, the two key problems that I would point out with the, with the extant historical support sources.
0: In your opinion, has the story of the Cyprus camps been adequately studied by scholars of modern Jewish history? Why or why not?
1: In in, in my opinion, the story is not well known, Um, not even by Jewish scholars who specialize in modern Jewish history, Uh, and surprisingly, not even by British scholars who specialize in post-World War II military history. in fact, I was astounded a few years ago by a letter I received from a British academic. Um, I knew that he specialized in post-World War II British military history, uh, so he seemed like the, person, the perfect person to contact. And um, I sent him an email with a question about doing research on this subject in the UK National Archives. And what was his response? He said, I didn't realize that the British had set up camps in Cyprus for Jewish immigrants after World War II. He wasn't aware. He hadn't heard it, which, I mean, really, I, I, I fell out of my chair. I was gobsmacked, as the British would say. Uh, according to Hansard, which is the official record of all parliamentary debates, there were 2,200 British officers and soldiers assigned To guarding and administering the Cyprus detention camps, two thousand two hundred British officers and soldiers, Um, but he wasn't aware of it. So why why is this case why 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 is this the case that that the story has not you know has has not has been overlooked so frequently by scholars? There are a couple of reasons, but um, I think the main reason, the primary reason. Um, is that the, 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 this episode, the episode of the Cyprus camps, is sandwiched between two monumental events. On the one hand, the Holocaust, and on the other hand, the creation of the State of Israel. Um, this episode is literally overshadowed by those those two monumental events. Now, when I think of this episode, I'm reminded of something I saw years ago in, in Manhattan. There was a quaint little house that was wedged between two skyscrapers now no doubt that little house had uh, an interesting history maybe it was a way station on the underground railroad that was used by you know fugitive slaves as they were escaping to the north escaping to freedom or maybe that little cottage was designed by a famous architect okay and it's who knows maybe it's the last specimen of a certain architectural style but you know, as you walk by, as you stroll down the street, what grabs your attention, of course, is the two huge skyscrapers. That little house, because of its size uh, and its and its position, it's, it's totally overlooked. It's literally lost in the shadow of the two huge skyscrapers. So in my mind, the story of the Cypress Camps is that little house. It has been eclipsed by the Holocaust, which ended in 1945, and the creation of the State of Israel in 1948.
0: Do you see yourself continuing your research on the Cyprus camps? Henceforward?
1: Yes, I do. Um, And, and let me explain. My book has received, you know, a very positive reception. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm I'm, I'm grateful for that. It's been reviewed very positively, very positively in two scholarly journals. Um, And one, one scholar, in fact, has called it the Wikipedia of the Cyprus camps, which I thought was nice. Um, of course, Wikipedia and an entry in Wikipedia can be edited by 100 people. And this book was was written was was put together by one person. But anyway, I thought that was nice. Uh, but I feel a strong, um, what shall I say, an obligation to continue with my research. Uh, I'd like to I'd like to publish a, publish a second edition of my book. Uh, a second second edition should include photographs, maybe facsimiles of key documents, uh, and hopefully, if I can find them, additional maps. Um, the second edition should also include new information that has recently come to light. Uh, I mean, in some cases, in some cases, the passage of time is beneficial to historical research. New sources are discovered, New sources are made public by archives after being closed, sealed, right, for a lengthy period of time. But for the most part, for the most part, the passage of time is detrimental to historical research. With the passage of time, documents disappear, they disintegrate, they become dispersed. Uh, In some cases, they're destroyed because they're important. Their importance is not recognized. You know, and in terms of documents disintegrated, don't forget the paper that was used in the immediate post-war period was was very flimsy. It was of very poor quality. It had a low rag content. It was highly acidic. Um, I mean, when we undertook a major microfilming project at, at the JDC um, project that we undertook in conjunction with the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington D.C., we we discovered that there were many newsletters. Produced in the camps, uh, that had simply disintegrated. They couldn't be handled. They, if you touched them, they fell apart. Uh, so they couldn't be handled. They couldn't, and they couldn't be photographed. They couldn't be microfilmed. So, and of course, the the former detainees were still alive. There are still a few. Uh, and in many cases, they they are happy to share their memories of the camps. These people are in their mid 80s for the most part they will not be with us forever so i strongly feel the need to move quickly this is i feel this is really the last opportunity to rescue these documents and these memories from oblivion i mean this is really a historical
0: salvage operation who was Fouad bay why is he significant can you tell us about him
1: uh, yes he was he was um, a Turkish uh, um, citizen he was a Turkish uh, Cypriot um, he was uh, an attorney and a member of the English bar um, and he uh, stands out for two things that he did uh, for the for the Jewish det- detainees uh, in one case a nurse by the name of Ruth Tannenbaum, uh, was arrested and charged with assisting uh, the escape of a certain detainee from jail, uh, and Morris Lab of the JDC hired Fuad uh, Bey to to represent this this nurse, and she was acquitted. Uh, in another case, uh, a detainee by the name of Aryeh Zin- Zizimsky, I hope I think I'm pronouncing that name correctly, Zizimsky, um, he filed an application for a writ of habeas corpus uh, in Cyprus, and he was represented again by Fuad Bey. So Fuad um, Bey stands out as a Turkish uh, Cypriot uh, who really bent over backwards to to help the detainees. Apparently, he had a very good relationship with Morris Lab of the Joint and Morris Laub and of the joint of the of the JDC uh mentions Fuad Bey um very fondly in in his uh in his um in his work about the Cyprus camps.
0: Can you tell us about your personal experiences traveling to Cyprus?
1: Yes, I've been I've been to Cyprus once. Um and as I think I mentioned, I I was disappointed by the material I found in the state archives. The state archives, really, the the Cyprus file, the 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 Cyprus detention camp files, uh, I think were cleared out, cleaned out by the British uh, in 1960. Uh, But I did have a very positive experience at the uh, public affairs office in Nicosia that government office where I was able to search, you know, they had the database of the of the digitized Cypriot newspapers. And that was a very positive experience. And uh, as a matter of fact, the printing was free, they they didn't charge me even to print, uh, I printed probably 100 pages, and they, they didn't accept any payment for the for the for the print, for the prints. So, uh, so that was a positive experience. The camps themselves, um, there's nothing really to see. Uh, the summer camp, <clears throat> excuse me, the summer camps are located today uh, on the Turkish side of of Cyprus. You know, in 1974, the Turks invaded northern Cyprus and and occupied the northern part of the island. Uh, the summer camps um, are located. Uh, apparently on the grounds of a Turkish military base um, uh, north of Famagusta. And the winter camps, many of the winter camps are located on the site of a British military base um, in in Cyprus. So there's really very little to see in terms of of the camps themselves. Uh, A friend of mine went to Cyprus a number of years ago, and came back with uh, pieces of barbed wire and a few few relics. Uh, apparently, she had succeeded in in gaining access to the site of one of the camps, and she had found these bits of barbed wire and so forth. But that's really that's all that's left. the The British uh, in February of nineteen forty nine, the British raised the camp sites, and and there's nothing left to see.
0: Can you elaborate on the steps that Britain took to pressure European countries not to allow Jews to emigrate?
1: Um, Well, there was uh, the campaign of, of, uh, you know, diplomatic, there was the diplomatic campaign of uh, exerting pressure on the governments um, of of the countries uh, where the from which the from which the the detainees were leaving, from which the excuse me, from which the Jewish would be immigrants were leaving. Uh, there was that di- diplomatic uh, campaign. Uh, they uh, tried. Uh, I know, in at least one case, they tried to sabotage a ship that they knew would be used by Jewish would be immigrants. Uh, there was the disastrous. Uh, campaign of you know sending the Jewish uh, would-be immigrants back to Europe. I'm referring, of course, to the, the to the Exodus episode. Uh, the British uh, intercepted that ship and sent it first back to they. They said they were sending it back to Cyprus. Of course, that didn't happen. They sent the ship back to French to to France. When the French, when the French uh, refused to forcibly uh, disembark the, the 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 Jews, the passengers. Uh, the the British decided to, uh, to to send the ship on to to uh, to Germany, and of course the outcry in the world press was 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 deafening. Uh, people people couldn't believe that these uh, poor miserable people were being sent back to the country that had instigated the, the their, their sufferings um, and of course the the fourth the fourth campaign was the was the campaign to send the to send the, uh, the the Jews to Cyprus put them in camps put them in camps where there's not enough water there's not enough food there's no freedom there's no privacy put them there and surely the British thought surely that will put an end to the Jewish uh, um, you know the Jewish um, immigration movement, and of course, they failed in that regard. The Jews kept coming. The Jews kept trying to reach Israel. Uh, the British kept intercepting the ships and deporting the, their passengers to Cyprus. And uh, eventually, the, the British realized they couldn't. They couldn't. They couldn't continue with this policy. And this policy was a failure.
0: What kinds of holdings do the British National Archives and the Cypriot National Archives possess regarding the Jewish experience in Cyprus.
1: Yeah, there, there are in in the UK and Q, there are some interesting files. Um, There, there are files, for example, there was a British policy of, of British decision to release 500 orphans from the Cyprus camps in August of 1947. Um, and the, the minutes and the letters and the internal discussions, uh, have been preserved and those discussions, those internal discussions are fascinating. They're really, they really are fascinating. Um, and you see, uh, you see from those internal memos that in fact, the British had two motivations for sending these 500 orphans to mandatory Palestine. Number one, they wanted to thin out the camps. There were too many people. They, they, the camps were overcrowded. And number two, um, and number two, they wanted to curry favor with UNSCOP, this uh, United Nations Special Committee on Palestine, which was at that time uh, in in Mandatory Palestine and was, you know, having meetings and 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 having discussions about the future of Palestine. And the British thought, hey, look, we're going to score some points. As a matter of fact, I think that exact phrase is used in one of the British documents. We want to score points with UNSCOP, this United Nations uh, Committee. Um, but many of the files in in queue in, in the UK National Archives are disappointing. I mean, I'll point to one example. The, if you if you if you search the, the the online catalog of the UK National Archives, you see that there are four files pertaining to the British military hospital in Nicosia. Oh, great! Okay, that's that sounds encouraging, right? I mean, uh, the the there were two thousand Jewish babies born in the British military hospital in Nicosia, and countless people, countless. Jewish det- detainees were treated there, some uh, unfortunately died there. Um, but then you order these four files, and you see that these four files contain a total of 16 pages, 16 pages. And the, the comments as you read, I mean, the, the, the comments are, you know, basically worthless. Uh, you know, the comments are in there, you find such uh, comments as normal hospital routine uh normal uh nor uh, morale is excellent and so on and so forth i mean the files really tell you nothing so so if you go to queue to the uk national archives and you order the the cypress files you know be prepared for some some support some surprises and be prepared for many disappointments um and as for the archives in uh, in Cyprus, well, in 1960, I think the the, the British uh, before before they cleared out, before they granted independence to Cyprus, they took a lot of material with them. There's very little material. I think there are twelve, 12 files altogether in in in, 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 in Nicosia and in the state archive in Nicosia.
0: Can you describe some of the maps presented in the book?
1: Sure. Um, as I said, I think that was the that was the toughest chapter to to write, to research and to write, uh, because we have general descriptions of the camps. I mean, we know there were five camps uh, in the so-called summer camps north of Famagusta, and there were seven camps, um, the, the so-called winter camps, uh, north and and uh, and east of Larnaca. Uh, we have that general information but specific information is very very hard to come by um, and I I ended up uh, I really I really pulled my hair out uh, on this on this subject um, I was I was fortunate I found in the case of the the, the summer camps uh, I found in, in a British publication I found actually an aerial photograph of the camps, the summer camps uh, north of Famagusta. Uh, and that aerial photograph was taken in 1946, as I recall. Uh, so I, I, I was lucky with that. But with the winter camps, um, I, I didn't have such luck. Uh, there is a, a rough diagram of, of five of the winter camps uh done apparently by a detainee but it's a very rough diagram uh it's not terribly it's not terribly helpful the map does not have for example a uh, what is it called a, a a compass rose uh indicating the north south east west uh, directions uh, uh it's a very uh it's a very rough map so uh and in fact uh, it, it, it's it's shocking um how little information is found about the specific location of the camps Um, i recently read a book by sarah helm british uh, scholar who wrote an article about who wrote a book about the ravensbrook camp the nazi camp for women and at the beginning of the book she has a very detailed map there's a very detailed map of the ravensbrook uh camp um such such a camp such a map I have not found I have not yet found for, for Cyprus.
0: Can you tell us about the living survivors of the Cyprus camps that you met? What were your encounters like with those individuals? What did you learn from them?
1: Um, that actually that actually was the most exciting aspect of my research. You know, again, as an undergraduate, I studied ancient uh, Rome and Greece. And in graduate school, I studied medieval, medieval uh, history, medieval philosophy. So, wow, uh, to be able to talk to living people who were in the camps and who remember the camps uh, was very, very exciting for me. Um, I can't think honestly. I can't think of any instance where, you know, an eyewitness, where eyewitness testimony, informed me of an event. Uh you know, that I'd never heard of, about which I had never heard. Um, but in many cases, eyewitness testimonies provide the color, they provide the texture. Um, I guess in a few cases, they also explained explained minor points that had that had puzzled me. Um, and I, for example, the, the visit of a Golda Meyerson, to the Cyprus camps in mid-November 1947. Of course, Golda Meyerson, as she was known then, was later known as Golda Meyer. Golda Meyer visited the camps um, in mid-November 1947. And she was she was a, a a very big figure in the Jewish world. She was a very well-known figure. Of course, she wasn't, she was not yet the, the prime minister. The state of Israel didn't exist at that time but she was the acting head of the political department of the, of the Jewish agency. And she was, she was a known figure. The, the British knew who she was in this, and the detainees certainly knew who she was. Um, and of course, her visit to Cyprus uh, was extensively covered. I, I read newspaper articles about it, and it's, 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 there are no, no dearth of material on Golda Meir's visit to Cyprus in November of 1947. And she mentions it also in her autobiography, how, she, how you know, that, that she was greeted by the detainees and they presented her with a bouquet of flowers and so on and so forth. But, you know, her, her, her visit really sort of came home. It was driven home to me when I spoke to two, two gentlemen. Unfortunately, both, uh, both of them have passed away in the last few years. But I, I, I spoke to two gentlemen who were in the Cyprus camps. Uh, in November of 1947. Um, and they told me, they shared with me their, their memories of Golda's entrance into the camps. One, one, one gentleman told me, his name was Moshe Moschkowitz, told me that, um, well, he was talking to Golda as she entered the camps, and he said this, and Golda said that, and he said this, Golda said that. And I said to him, I said to him, "Excuse me, how, how do you know? How do you know what Golda said?" And Moshe said to me, "What do you mean? How do I know?" She was standing right next to me. Uh, in another case, a a a there was a prof- a professor from the Hebrew, someone who later became a professor at the Hebrew University. His name was Professor Emmanuel Gutman, uh, and he was a, a young teacher in the camps. Uh, and he told me he told me that when Golda Meir entered the camps, he was positioned. It had been raining heavily that the week before her arrival, and so he found a dry spot to to stand because he wanted he wanted to get a good picture of Golda entering the camps. Again, she was a she was a well known figure, uh, and he wanted to record it for posterity. Uh, anyway, there was there was a nurse standing in the way. Uh, and she was sort of obstructing uh, his view. So he asked the nurse if she could move a little bit. She said, no, why should I move? I'm I'm standing on a dry patch here. I don't want to stand in the mud. And anyway, they struck up a conversation and uh, Professor Emanuel uh, Gutman later married the nurse. Her name was uh, Nechama Foreman. He married her and they were married for 60 years. So it, these kinds of stories, they add, you know, the color, the texture, they, they, they bring these events to life. you know, stories that you read about, okay, you read about them in the newspaper, or you read about them in, in a scholarly book. Okay, they're interesting, but they're, they're in black and white. But when you talk to these, these living witnesses, these living eyewitnesses, uh, these stories really, you know, they take on—it's like that moment in the Wizard of, Wizard of Oz when everything becomes technicolor. That's—that's—that was the feeling. That was the feeling. I, got. I hope that answers your question.
0: Thank you. How do you feel that you grew in your research process? In what ways do you feel that your research process changed you? And to what degree do you feel that? the product of your research would change readers who engage with your work?
1: Well, on a, on a personal level, I've, I've certainly met uh, many fascinating individuals in the course of this research, some of them librarians and archivists, uh, others, um, for example, I mentioned the 500 orphans. I've met probably a half a dozen of, 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 these, of these orphans. Um, many of them are in their 80s um a few have already passed away um but again these are people who remember they 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 remember the events they they remember there was a the, the orphans i should say were i should mention were were concentrated in in one of the camps in cyprus in camp 65 and the commander of camp 65 was major maitland and i've read stories about major maitland um but uh, it wasn't until I met a neighbor here in in, in Israel uh, that Major Maitland's personality really came to life. Uh, I asked this 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 neighbor of mine. I said, "Did you ever meet Major Maitland when he was when you were in Camp 65?" And he said, "Did I meet him?" He said, um, "My little sister, my little sister was." Was taken ill she had a communicable disease she was taken to the british military hospital in nicosia for treatment it's great except there were two problems first of all from camp 65 to nicosia is probably a distance of 40 kilometers and also uh, an even more basic problem is that that the, the detainees were not allowed to leave the camp uh and he said his problem was presented to Major Maitland, and Major Maitland said, not a problem, I will put a truck at your disposal and a driver at your disposal, and he will take you twice a week to the British military hospital in Nicosia so that you can visit your little sister, okay? So that's that's the kind of interaction that, that uh, you know, that moved me and, and you know, that that really stays with me. Um, I've been told, I've been told by people, I mean, a short while ago, I met a woman, she's an archivist at the Albert Einstein archives in Jerusalem at the Hebrew University. Uh, she told me, uh, that she had used my book. Uh, she was planning a trip to Cyprus. She wanted to visit, uh, the sites of, uh, where her, where her father-in-law had been detained. And she found my book to be very, very useful. Uh, she said her father-in-law had been a had been a uh, and uh, had been a passenger on the ship called the, the Um uh, She turned to the page. Uh, there's a chapter in my book on the ships of the of the uh, would-be immigrants, the Jewish would-be immigrants. Uh, there's a chapter on the ships. There's a couple of pages about the latrine, specifically about the latrine. There she found the dates, uh, everything she needed to know. And there was a footnote there that pointed to a source that uh, lists the names of all the passengers on the latrine. And she said she found her father-in-law's name there in that list. So anecdotally, I've gotten some very you know, positive feedback from from people who have used the book uh, profitably. And as I mentioned, uh, the book has been res- has, has been reviewed uh, positively in two scholarly journals. So, and it's been sold, gosh, in uh, uh, some 1000 libraries around the world. Um, you know, my I jokingly said to my wife, uh, early on in the project, I said, we should visit every library uh, in the world that buys a copy of my book. Well, I hope my wife doesn't remember that because uh, because so far, uh, libraries in over thirty countries have have purchased my book, and I I don't want to go to all thirty countries with my wife to to show her my copy of the book. So um, so that's that. Um, I think I think I made a contribution, and I want to, as I said, in a second edition, I want to continue. Continue with that contribution. The material—I want to save that material before it's lost to history.
0: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book?
1: Um, I've worked on—I've worked on uh, a number of different projects. But um, if you—if you pick up my personal copy of the book here, uh, you'll see that on virtually every page, there are penciled. Remarks and additions, and and so forth, um, and that's that's been a a big that's been a big part of my time. Uh, I I do feel there is, I mean, in some cases, you know, in some cases, new information has come to light. Um, for example, there's a scholar here in Israel who has written a very interesting book about the North African Jews who were detainees in the camp. That's a subject that was that's been largely ignored in the past. Um, So, uh, in some cases, new information comes to light. Uh, In other cases, um, um, I've spoken to in a couple of cases, I've I've spoken to children of the detainees, and ah, turns out that uh, you know, I, 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 the, the. uh, I quoted uh, I quoted some information that was incorrect, uh, and if, and they gave me the the, the real story. Um, so as I said, pick up my copy of the book. There are penciled uh, annotations, uh, marginalia on nearly every page, and um, this this information has to be preserved uh, for future generations. You know, I I have a, I have a strong feeling if
0: if. If,
1: if I don't do it today, uh, a lot of this information is just going to be lost.
0: This is so important, and I wish you the very, very best of luck in this Thank you very, much. very important initiative.
1: Thank you very much.
0: I appreciate that. As we end today's dialogue, I'm your host on the new Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Itzhak Toich. We've been discussing his book, The Cyprus Detention Camps, the Essential Research Guide, published by Cambridge Scholars Publishing, 2019. Itzhak is an independent scholar. He is a former librarian at Harvard University and former director of the Joint Distribution Committee, JDC, Archives in Jerusalem. Thank you.